Hello, I'm Jimmy Ronald, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, and we gather friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. Hi, I'm Danielle Yet, and joining us today is our guest, Dr. Jeffrey Dudiak, Professor of Philosophy at the King's University in Edmonton, Alberta. Jeff is an alumnus of ICS and a beloved undergraduate teacher. He's currently on sabbatical writing a book and developing an interactive forum on wisdom and polarization called Of Serpents and Doves, Explorations in Christian Wisdom. Today, though, Jeff has joined us for a kind of chapter-by-chapter walkthrough of his previous book titled Post-Truth, Facts, and Faithfulness, published as part of the CPRSE's Currents in Reformational Thought series. It's a quick read, but a very important one. In it, Jeff argues that, quote, the current crisis in truth is the effect of an impoverished sense of truth, and that we need, therefore, a richer sense of truth, one that is thicker, more profound, more robust. So if you haven't read it, we hope today's conversation will encourage you to check it out for yourself. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us for the podcast today. We're very excited to have you for a conversation about your book. Thank you. It's it's uh, good to uh, be in conversation with three people I like very much. So this is this is good. And uh, we like you very much too, Jeff. <laughs> I have a few questions that I just wanted to run through. Each one is kind of about a different chapter of your book, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on those. So, my first question is: Do you think the choice to understand truth as faithfulness is a leap of faith that cannot be justified from a neutral position? In your book, you argue that truth is best understood as faithfulness, a broad understanding of truth that lets us include values, morals, and faith within the scope of truth alongside science. In chapter one of your book, you mention some isms that might pose a threat to this understanding of truth. First, cynicism, a general attitude of suspicion in light of humankind's tendencies towards hypocrisy and manipulation. Second, skepticism, the belief that human beings are incapable of knowing the truth. And third, relativism, the view that truth just is whatever we happen to believe here and now. Another ism that could be added to this list, an ism which you also discuss in the book, is scientism, the view that something can only be true if it has been scientifically proven. All of these views can be potentially harmful and that they tend to distract us from pursuing the task of faithfulness. Uh, It seems to me that none of them can be refuted conclusively. Rather, the choice to understand truth as faithfulness, instead of lapsing into cynicism, skepticism, relativism, or scientism, is a leap of faith that cannot be justified from a neutral position. Do you think this is true? Also, do you have any advice on what to do when we recognize cynical, skeptical, relativistic, or reductionistic tendencies in ourselves? Should we try to fight against these tendencies? or should we embrace them as necessary guardrails against naivety and credulousness? Okay, well, that's uh, quite a question to start with. And um, my assumption is that not everyone who is listening to this will have read the book, um, even though they probably should have. Um, So let me just say a little bit about how, how some of what I think is in the background of your question. And the basic premise of the book is that we live in what's called the post-truth era. That's the title of the book. And this is something that I didn't come up with. This is something that is generally, uh, well, not generally, but at least broadly acknowledged. And one of the problems with the post-truth era is that we no longer have a shared sense of 
what is true such that we can rally around that and move forward uh, together productively. And we see that with political polarization and in all kinds of uh, destructive ways. And so my uh, project um, is to think truth more broadly. And one of the ways that I start with that is to think older senses of truth. And one of the good ways to do that is to look at the word troth, which is where the old English word from which we get our word truth. And so um, those people who are my age or older were probably at a wedding when they were younger, um, when, when they heard someone do, making their wedding vows and saying to the person they were marrying, I pledge you my troth. And basically what that means is I will be true to you or I will be faithful to you. And so that sense of truth is broader, uh, richer than just truth as fact. Normally we now think of truths as what's, what is factually the case. And um, something is true if it's the case and not true if it's not the case. But here's a sense of truth that is broader than that because when you say at your wedding, I pledge you my troth, or I will be faithful to you, or I will be true to you, you haven't done it yet. It's not a fact, it's a promise. And so the premise of the book is that there is this deeper sense of truth, and that truth as fact is one kind of faithfulness. So when you say, uh, you know, I am in a conversation with uh, Danielle and Jimmy and Hector, um, that is true if in fact I if, if, if in fact I am in a, in a conversation with Danielle, Jimmy and Hector. And so what I am saying is faithful to or true to the situation that I'm describing. That's one kind of faithfulness, but there are all other kinds of faithfulness. So when I am talking about cynicism and skepticism and relativism, and maybe we can keep scientism aside. I think that's a slightly different issue. Um, it's a slightly different animal, but that will come up, I think, in, in maybe the discussion of chapter two. Um, I am not saying that these are things that stand in the way of truth as faithfulness. They're rather reasons that we find ourselves in the post-truth era. And so if you suspect that every time someone tells you a truth, they are trying to manipulate you and get the better of you and turn the truth to their advantage, that's having a cynical attitude. Um, if you think that uh, we just throw our hands up and it's impossible to know the truth, should I get vaccinated or should I not get vaccinated? Some experts say one thing, some experts seem, seem to say another thing. Um, that also leads us into this post-truth era when, when we have a hard time finding a shared sense of truth. And relativism, likewise, right? If if we have one set of truths, um, you know, women's truth, and on the other side we have men's truth, or we have uh, white truth and black truth, and we or, or whatever it is that we have, um, that leads us to suspect that maybe we don't have the truth at all. And so I don't think those things um, stand in the way of truth as faithfulness. In fact, they might drive us to truth as faithfulness, um, because or uh, in relativism, for instance, if truth is, is faithfulness and I need to be faithful to my neighbor, it might really be helpful for me to know uh, that the truth looks different from over there than it does from over here. To know that there is a truth outside of my truth that I need to respect and people who hold that truth that I owe some sort of fidelity to. Um, it's probably good for me to be skeptical, to, to have the sense that uh, I don't have the whole truth. Um, that there is a truth beyond the truth that I have. Um, it's probably good for me to be cynical once in a while too, um, because um, being able to look at the powers that be and see the way in which they are using the truth to uh, take advantage of those without power um, is probably something that it's good for me to recognize if in fact I'm going to be faithful to the people who um, are being abused by those powers. And so I think that... Um, those things don't necessarily stand in the way of truth as faithfulness. They might find ways of migrating their way over into uh, degrading faithfulness. For instance, if I'm simply cynical um, and I think that um, there's no point in even being faithful because that's a manipulation too, um, they could possibly stand in the way, but I think not necessarily. So another part of your question, I think, is can faithfulness be proven um, and I think it can't be. I think facts can be proven. 
whether we're verificationists or whether we're falsificationists, these are uh, proving facts is a complicated thing in the first place. But I think facts can be proven. I think that um, uh, faithfulness has to be lived. It can't be can't be demonstrated or can't be proven. So I think faithfulness is always a response to a call rather than a fact. Um, not something that is, but something that needs to be accomplished. Um, and so for me, the basis of uh, faithfulness is the, the the calls in Genesis, let there be and there was. So everything that exists is already a response to God's call to be. And so everything that exists is already in a certain sense responsible, is already faithful to that call or it wouldn't exist. If it didn't answer that call, it wouldn't have existed. And so, um, you know, there are more and less faithful ways in which we can respond to God's call. Um, and none of them are facts in advance. So um, the last thing I would sort of say is I think that prophecy is um, our ability, our call to call others to the responsibility that they have. And again, I don't think that's calling them to facts. I think that's calling them to faithfulness. Thanks. That was a very... Uh... <laughs> Very thorough response. So we appreciate it. And um, what you're saying, as I understand it, is that in the world today, we find ourselves in kind of this crisis where on the one hand, we do care about truth. Truth is very important to us. But on the other hand, we might find ourselves uh, falling into despair sometimes where we think either, oh, we can't know the truth or there's no way to adjudicate between my truth and somebody else's or everybody's just trying to manipulate the truth to uh, get other people to do what they want. Right. So then we're kind of in this mode of crisis where we want truth, uh, but we can't find truth. And your uh, helpful proposal to uh, maybe navigate a way out of the situation or at least live in this situation is to go back into the philosophical tradition and kind of retrieve a, a deeper, richer sense of truth than the sense of truth just as bare facts. What is the case over against what is not the case? And then once you arrive at that deeper understanding of truth, you can realize that it's not just about knowing the truth in the sense of truth as facts, but there's also such a thing as living in the truth, being in the truth, acting in the truth, uh, and so on. So yeah, that's great. Thanks, Jeff. So my second question was, do you think the plurality of worldviews in our plural society makes it difficult to reconnect being and meaning? The question is clear as mud, right? <laughs> but I can unpack it a little bit. Um, in chapter two of your book, you argue that the disconnect we often assume between facts on the one hand and meaning on the other is the result of a particular narrative, namely the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, you argue, tells a very different story about things than its pre-modern counterparts of ways of thinking. Uh, for instance, it was an assumption of pre-modern thought that the being and meaning of things are deeply connected in the sense that to understand what something is, is to understand what it is for what its purpose is in a larger context. This is an assumption that we can no longer take for granted. Instead, it is easy to think that things just are what they are without any intrinsic meaning, and that meaning is something we impose onto reality, and thus not something true. Uh, with your notion of truth as faithfulness, I thought that the separation of meaning and truth is something you might want to resist. However, do you think the plurality of worldviews that comes along with our plural society makes it difficult to reconnect being and meaning? After all, if two people see the same thing as meaning something very different according to their different worldviews, doesn't this mean that they have quote-unquote alternative truths, just as some would claim to have quote-unquote alternative facts? <laughs> and this is something you mentioned in the book. Uh, should we accept that there are a number of mutually incompatible truths, each associated with a different worldview? Or should we simply try to live in faithfulness to our own truth without worrying whether the truths accepted by others are true according to our understanding of things. Okay, well, another another uh, simple, straightforward question, uh, Jimmy. So thanks for that. Totally. <laughs> um, I'll, uh, I'll, say a, I'll say a few things, and then um, you can feel free to follow up on the parts of the question that I either inadvertently or intentionally ignored. So the first thing I would want to say with respect to this is that the way I understand this um, is that worldview and worldviews and facts are in some sort of symbiotic relationship with each other. They belong together. And worldview is an interesting term. I, I decided to use worldview in this uh, book. A lot of people don't like worldview because it sounds too theoretical. 
Um, Charles Taylor uses social imaginary for much the same thing. Um, and that was adopted and taken over at least for a while by uh, our friend Jamie Smith, who has an ICS background too. And, um, uh, you know, Nick Ansel, who teaches at ICS, said, why do we have a worldview that's too theoretical? We might as well have a world smell. Um, why do we privilege one sense over another? And, you know, there's something to that too. But nevertheless, I like the world, the, the word worldview, even though it has some problems, because it lends us this helpful metaphor of, of, um, of being a lens. Um, it's not the world, it's the way, it's that through which we see the world, that through which the world is uh, refracted for us that gives us our understanding. And so when you change lenses, you see things differently. Um, I remember when I was a teenager, I, I uh, went out for my first pair of glasses uh, when it was discovered that I needed glasses. And of course, at the time, the popular person was Elton John. And so my glasses were way too big and they were pink in color. And so uh, everything that I, my whole world all of a sudden was pink because it, they were refracted through this, this lens. And so we do, we do have um, ways of seeing things in this broad sense of seeing, of understanding, of living in, um, that I think are worldviews and facts arise within those contexts. So facts are never just pure facts. Um, facts are answers to questions. And so the questions that we ask, in some ways, determine the, the answers that we get. And so uh, the questions that we ask are, I think, related to our worldview, our way of understanding, our, what, we, what we expect to get back. So worldviews, I think, though, are not arbitrary. We often worry that our, with our worldview, we impose our view of the world um, onto the facts. And so the facts become irrelevant because we just spin them the way that we want. And I think that's what ideologies do. So in the third chapter, which we're, we won't talk about now, at least, um, I distinguish between ideologies and worldviews. Um, but what I would say, and this is related to that, um, is that when we have a worldview, we need to be, worldviews are related not to facts primarily, but to faithfulness. And so worldviews, in a certain sense, need to be faithful to the facts. So if you have a worldview that bizarrely would say something like, food is bad for you, um, that would probably not be a very good worldview to hold. That wouldn't be a faithful uh, way of construing the facts and uh, holding such a worldview wouldn't last for long. So um, we do have to be faithful to the facts in our worldviews. We also need to be faithful to others. Our worldviews need to be faithful to others. So um, if part of my worldview is that um, uh, everyone is out to get me or uh, I better get the other person before they get me, um, that's a hopefully less faithful way of uh, being in a worldview over against, say, something like um, uh, love one another as I have loved you. Okay, so that might be a better, more faithful way of being towards others in a worldview. And if you hold a worldview where where everyone is an enemy to everyone else, um, that's probably not a very livable worldview. Um, likewise, we have to be in our worldviews um, faithful to God and not have false gods or false idols. And so if we live our worldview in a way where we live in a world where uh, we think of God as love or God as life, um, that's probably more faithful way of being in our worldview than if we have a worldview that says uh, money is our God or power is our God. So um, worldviews are not these arbitrary things that we just choose um, and that, that don't answer to anything. They precisely need to be faithful. And when they're not faithful, they collapse. Um, you know, if you hold a Nazi worldview, it's it's this bright shining star for a while that generates all kind of energy, but then it burns out quickly um, because it's not a sustainable way of being in the world. So um, worldviews are not themselves facts, but ways uh, of living and understanding that call for faithfulness. And they're not without criterion. Uh, a criteria. They lead to blessing or they lead lead to curse. And I think that most people who, um, for instance, young people or old people too, who um, abandon a religious tradition, uh, they tend not to do it because 
of some fact. Um, you know, they stop believing in the resurrection or something like that. You know, that the, the resurrection seems incredible to them. Um, they tend to stop to leave that 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 worldview, that religious tradition, um, because it is not faithful any longer to their life and their experience. They experience it as as oppressive or as a curse rather than a blessing. And likewise, if we adopt a religious tradition, it, it tends to be not because we're convinced of the facts. Occasionally, that happens. Maybe. There's a place in the world for apologists, but for the most part, it's because this way of living um, promises life. So none of this is definitive uh, because we're not in the realm of facts. We're in the realm of faithfulness and ways of being um, need to be discerned. Um, we need to discern whether this way of being in the world leads to life or leads to death. And that's not provable. Um, and so uh, do we um, do we just live in our own tradition and let others live in their tradition? To some extent, I think maybe we do. Um, our task is to be faithful. Our task is to testify to our tradition. Um, you know, if we really have good news, then it's probably a good idea to share that good news um, rather than keep it to ourselves um, and then trust that tradition. Um, but we're not, I, I think we're not in the realm of, of facts where we can go out and make our case and prove our case. Uh, we testify to the life or the death that we find in our various ways of being in the world. Well, thanks for unpacking the concept of a worldview. And uh, thanks also for distinguishing between uh, worldviews and ideologies. Like you said, that's something that uh, you do in chapter three. I think the main insight that I was hoping to get at uh, with my question and that you talked about in chapter two, which is um, this idea of thinking of facts as, as meaningless, perhaps, and making this sharp, sharp distinction between fact and value seemed kind of problematic to me because, well, that means if our values, our uh, sense of what's important and what matters and what is meaningful fall completely outside the realm of fact, it can all, almost just become uh, arbitrary and then we can start saying anything we want or maybe even possibly. Uh, oppressing or hurting others. But um, when you point out that facts are a kind of truth that is understood only in the context of a, a worldview or way of seeing the world that includes values as a part of it, then you can reconnect the two and point out that facts only make sense within the, the broader horizon of uh, meaning and meaningfulness. But then I was wondering as a follow-up to that, well, the fact that we have different worldviews, different ways of seeing the world, people in different communities, and even um, different individuals in the same community, we all see things a bit differently. Does that mean we're left with this situation of all these alternative truths that are irreconcilable to the point where we can't really talk to each other anymore? And uh, <laughs> we're not even really living in the same world, as it were. Um, but you mentioned um, the analogy of seeing the world through, I guess, colored glasses. And I think that was pretty helpful because if you think of it in terms of that analogy, you can see how oh, even if different people have different colors of glasses, they'll see the same thing a bit differently. They are all looking at the same thing, right? So in a way, we're all living in the same world, but our experience of that world is conditioned, shaped by uh, the presuppositions that we bring to our experience of the world. And thus, we're going to see it a little bit differently. But on that understanding, I think uh, dialogue is possible and people can uh, shape and refine their understandings through an encounter of, uh, with a worldview that, uh, that differs from their own. I, I should have written down the source of this because I, I love the line. But years ago, I read a review, whether it was a fair review or not. Someone was writing a review of something that Derrida had written. And their take on Derrida was to say that uh, Derrida says that we should stop pretending that we understand each other and start pretending that we don't. And there's a wonderful profundity of in, in that statement because... Of course, we don't understand each other, but of course we do. Um, you know, we, we talk to each other all the time and there's ways in which we miss each other. But there's also a sense in which we do live in this shared world that that puts some sort of pressure and some kinds of constraints on us. And we put constraints on each other um, that are unavoidable in a certain sense. And, um, you know, we, we always they're always going to be interpreted. They're always going to be interpreted differently. So we're always going to struggle to try to make sense of our shared world. But at the same time, however we arrive at it, there is this pressure of the shared world that keeps imposing itself on us. Yeah, great. Um, Danielle, Hector, do you guys have any follow-ups at all? 
just in connection to what both of you were saying and, and Jeff, you give us a notion of kind of worldview uh, and of truth that it goes beyond coherence. And the two things that I rescue from your conversation on the one side is, Jeff, you mentioning kind of sustainability of a worldview, like the pressure of the world leads us, leads us to, to a particular view of what happens around us. And on the other side is, you know, a worldview is something that opens up possibilities, that is not only a truth in the present, but it's a, a truth that, that is future-oriented and it allows us to to open a path. So if you can just speak more about that, I, I love that connection and, and getting outside of the the mere kind of coherence set up in which an ideology also will fall. Yeah, I think that, that there are ways of being in the world that allow us to experience the world more richly. Um, and that is, and that's a healthy worldview. So a healthy worldview is one that allows us to be surprised, to have our expectations, um, you know, some phenomenologists would say disappointed, but maybe disappointed is the wrong word, um, because have our, have our expectations delighted uh, by being wrong. And so if you have a worldview that um, allows you to live in an increasingly complex and increasingly marvelous and diverse world, as opposed to having a worldview that um, shuts out the possibility of those kinds of things, um, which I think are which I think is not a healthy worldview and, and tends towards ideology. Um, ideologies are never surprised. They know what they know, and they're imposing that in the world in a one-directional sense. And so I think ideologies run from the worldview to the facts in one direction. Um, I think that, uh, um, and, and also run from worldviews to our relationships with others and to God in one direction. Uh, I think that um, uh, healthy worldviews are cyclical or spiraling or whatever, you know, the way they circle back on each other. And so my understanding of the world, rather than restricting further understandings of the world, creates greater possibilities for, for further understanding um, and for new surprises and new delights. And uh, one of the fears, of course, is that we get stuck in our worldviews and we can't get out of them and we can't see differently. Um, but I think that, um, I think worldviews are not that way, at least good, at least good healthy ones. Um, and this is this, of course, is what what good lenses do. Um, good lenses open up the world and allow us to see more. And I think that that in some ways, and I don't know what the right metaphor here is, but there's a sense in which when we see the world through a particular lens and we realize that our uh, our lens doesn't let us see everything that we should see, our encounter with what it is we're encountering encourages us to regrind our lens in a in a way that. Uh, allows us to focus on different things and 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 see differently and uh, and see better. So my question is about personal knowledge and uh, specifically, Jeff, about how the ideas you develop in chapter three of your book uh, affect your understanding of your profession as a teacher. Uh, in chapter three, you distinguish between knowing and knowing about. For example, when knowing another person, regardless of how much I know about them, how many third person communicable facts about that person I can list off, this is no substitute for knowing them on a personal level, for getting to know them in a face-to-face -face encounter. Furthermore, you associate knowing about with truth as fact, and personal knowledge with truth as faithfulness. You also make an interesting point, which is that the two forms of truth and two ways of knowing associated with them are not dichotomously opposed. Rather, one provides the context for the other, and yet this is something you already mentioned. With the example of science, I can enter into the detached, objective way of knowing associated with scientific method only within the context of an involvement with and concern about the things I'm studying. You also talk about several examples in chapter three of how these theoretical distinctions play out in practice. So I wanted to ask, how do these ideas you develop affect your understanding of your profession as a teacher? How can an awareness of the difference between knowing and knowing about and how can an understanding of truth as faithfulness help a teacher to teach their students more effectively? So I, um, I'd like to begin by reiterating um, or confirming your uh, observation that knowing 
uh, and knowing about are not in opposition to each other. I think there's a place for knowing about, an important place for knowing about. Um, for instance, I think that it would be a very bad idea to allow the pharmaceutical company that developed a particular drug to be the people who tested the efficacy of that drug. This is when we need an objective view um, that, that stands on the outside and says, you know, this is objectively the case or it's not the case. However, um, at the same time, that drug is probably only been developed uh, because of some interest that someone has. So the interest of the pharmaceutical company might be in making a lot of money, or let's give the pharmaceutical companies or the people who work in them more credit and say that they care deeply about people's suffering and they're developing drugs to alleviate those sufferings. And so we don't live in an objective world. Um, objectivity arises within the context of an interconnected world, a world where we have interests um, and uh, <clears throat> where there are goods and evils, where there are blessings and curses. Um, we live in, in, in all of the modalities of the world simultaneously. So we don't live in the biological world or we don't live in the economic world or we don't live just in the moral world. We live in all of those things simultaneously. And um, when we wanna do objectivity, we are abstracting from that fully lived world. And I think that even science is more true when we contextualize it within that interrelated, um, whole, interested, valued world than when we simply abstract from that world and, and think that we, that gives us the truth. So when I bring that down to the level of teaching and learning, uh, which is your question, I think that um, in some ways this is a question of relevance. Um, we learn better when what we are learning seems relevant to us. And I think relevance moves in a couple directions. So at one, uh, on the one side, um, as teachers, we need to be sensitive towards what is relevant to students? Um, we need to know our students and try to understand them and meet them in their world. So um, that's important. one side of it. The other side of it is that we should um, address what should be relevant to students, even if it's not. So to good, use a good um, ICS or reformational term, uh, we need to be involved in reforming students. We need to welcome them into richer and broader worlds than the ones they already live in. And so we need to find this balance between addressing students where they are and inviting them into a place where they might be that is different than the place that they are. And so I think that at places like where I teach at King's, where we think of this in terms of, in terms of a Christian context, um, <clears throat> that yeah, there is a deep way in which knowing is constitutive to knowing about. Um, so we need to welcome students uh, into the good news in all of its richness and all of its complexity. What is the good news for biology? What is the good news for economics? What is the good news for ethics? What is the good news for theology? What is the, okay, we need to be thinking along those lines. Um, and at the same time, we need to be sensitive to the reality of our students. And for me, I'm 62. It's increasingly difficult for me to... Uh, maybe really connect with a lot of my students on all levels because uh, um, that's just not going to happen. But I also need to realize that Christ needs to be incarnated into the world that my students live in and not just incarnated into the world that I live in. And so this is an ongoing challenge, I think, to find ways of meeting students where they are and invite them into places where they're not. And I don't think there's a formula for that. I think that it's a uh, this is an ongoing challenge. And um, I think good teachers um, and places where teachers commit themselves to trying to work that through um, are gonna be exciting learning places that are relevant to students for a variety of reasons. Yeah, great. I think uh, one important thing that comes along with your understanding of uh, truth is faithfulness is that we, when we understand uh, knowledge of facts, we don't think of those facts as just entirely uh, detached or, or separate from our the context in which we live uh, our lives in ordinary life, uh, our worldviews, 
values and uh, and so on. So um, I remember one uh, helpful example that you brought up in the book with uh, respect to science is that you talk about how at a Christian university, for example, uh, the concept of nature might be talked about in terms of uh, creation. So we can talk about studying creation as opposed to studying nature. And it's not that scientists who talk about it in terms of creation are studying anything different, factually speaking, from the scientists who study it at uh, perhaps studying it at a secular university. Um, the two groups of scientists can dialogue with each other and they are studying the same thing. But in a way, talking about the world as created uh, can be a good reminder to us as uh, Christians who are attempting to live faithfully uh, that the world is created by God and that we're called to be uh, faithful stewards of the creation and to treat a uh, created reality with a certain degree of respect and then reverence and awe almost. So, yeah, I thought that was a, a really helpful example. Yeah, I think there needs to be faithfulness all around. Um, I expect my students, they don't always come through. Uh, I expect them to be faithful in their in their coming to class and their being prepared and their willingness to learn. And I try and I don't always succeed in being faithful to my students and and doing, you know, what I the best I can do every day. And um, in doing that, we we both need to be faithful to the material and uh, that we're studying and um, and faithful to those that we are attempting to serve in the studying of that material um, and faithful to God in in our being faithful to others. But it is you know, one of the things that I do in, in class. Um, I often am the only one who shows up in a coat and a tie and the reason I do that, whether this actually works or not, is that I am attempting to communicate to students that I take this seriously and that I didn't just roll out of bed and, you know, show up at the front of the classroom and this is haphazard. Uh, I got up. I got prepared. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to teach. Uh, I'm taking it seriously. And I hope that you're ready to learn and you're taking it seriously, too. Now, whether whether that attempt actually communicates that or not, I don't know. But that's um, one of the ways in which I try to communicate to students that I'm being faithful to my task and faithful to them. Yeah, I think in your book throughout, when you're talking about uh, truth is faithfulness, you you do emphasize that it requires a certain degree of seriousness in the sense of taking responsibility serious, but not in the sense of just this solemn gravity where we're not allowed to have fun. Yeah, definitely like taking that call to responsibility seriously. I'll be the, the person that doesn't ask a question, but makes a comment. Uh, <laughs> both the conversation and the, and the book makes me uh, there is something in, in Paul Ricoeur who is my kind of conversation partner in my in my life as a philosopher um, that is the connection, connection between truth and, and action and, and you're helping me kind of bridge the gap there between one and the other one because truth is connected to faithfulness faithfulness is connected to responsibility, responsibility to responsiveness, responsiveness to capability. Um, so seeing kind of the example that you're giving us even of like how you approach a class is being being truthful to the class is somehow being more capable of being being an instructor. So I, I don't know if you want to talk more about that or just I just wanted to say that. Well, I, I would have to think a little more about that if I were going to intelligent, intelligently comment on it in terms of recur, um, who, whom I read years ago, but have, I'm not, unlike you, I'm not up on at the moment. Uh, but yeah, I think that in general, that's the case, right? I mean, I mean, I think a big part of this is finding our way into the world that allows us to bring insight and richness and um, responsibility all at, at, at one and the same time. And oftentimes we divide those things up and the university doesn't help because, you know, we have these departments and in big universities, they're not even in the same buildings. And there's all kinds of pressure on students to specialize and take more and more courses in their area. And so um, we do a very bad job of indicating to students that they live in a shared world um, and are responsible to each other in that world. And we may have our individual tasks uh, but our individual tasks are not isolated from uh, the individual tasks that other people are called to. Uh, I had just a question that I've been trying to formulate, and I'm not sure if I'm quite there yet, so hang with me. Um, your conversation about being a teacher and, you know, the kind of various pressures of trying to be relevant, but also trying to, like, 
form students in the way that they should be, not just as they are, but the balance of that. Um, it reminded me, or it brought to mind a conversation I had recently with someone who we were talking about a context that was intergenerational and why that was a good thing. And the comment that they made had made it clear that the reason they thought it was a good thing was because the youth could be shaped by the older generation in a way that it was just obvious it was a very one directional kind of relationship that you know the youth didn't know what they needed to know and the older people did and that, that was what was good about the meeting of the generations um and just your earlier comments about you know worldview being a more two-sided thing or like a give and take uh, call response kind of situation not an ideology being very one directional, never surprised, like that kind of stuff brought that to mind earlier as well. And I'm just, I'm <laughs> wondering how we can avoid seeing, you know, the youth as simply lost and aimless and, you know, suffering from the state of the world and instead also like learning from them when we're in positions of teaching not simply you know seeking to understand in order to understand how we can get them to understand where we're coming from you know so i hope that makes a little sense i was just interested to hear what you might think about that yeah i think uh this is this is sort of parallel to a little bigger not in the sense of more important but bigger in the sense of more historically broad um thing that i think about often um i think that progressives politically are extremely good at looking back and criticizing the tradition as being blind to certain things and um, uh, bringing a perspective on the tradition that needs to be brought to the tradition. Um, but I also think that traditions are deeply important because traditions allow us to have a perspective on the present that is broader than simply the demands of the moment. And so I think there needs to be a dialogue, a, um, a dialectical relationship between progressives and conservatives, uh, both of whom are attempting to do something very important. Um, progressives, I think, are often so excited about what's being gained that they are heedless of what's being lost. And I think that uh, conservatives are so nervous about what they might lose that they're willing to sacrifice uh, wonderful new opportunities. And so we need to discern this path forth. And so my sense is that, and I think we can apply this to younger people and older people, um, is that everyone's view is parochial. Um, everyone, the previous generation, the next generation, 14 generations from now, um, nobody has uh, insight, has definitive insight. And, um, uh, I think that thinking things intergenerationally um, in terms of traditions and also, um, you know, in your example, younger people learning from older people and older people learning from younger people, um, you know, those sorts of things are possible if we uh, recognize that uh, nobody has the answer. Um, this is something that we are working very hard to come to some sort of temporary livable understanding of for the moment um, and that it's going you know that is always going to evolve um, and so part of uh, I, part of my current wisdom project is working on some of these questions um, and you know we often think that it's the old people who have wisdom and in and they do have a certain wisdom uh, but they certainly don't have a corner on wisdom well, all the more reason to be excited about your project well there you go <laughs> Um, I'm just wondering, Jeff, would you want to say something about um, your next book that you're working on just briefly? Yeah, the, the, the basically, um, the, I think the title of the book is going to be uh, Of Serpents and Doves, which of course, um, you know, is from the, the, the verse, be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves. And so uh, the title is Of Serpents and Doves, and then the subtitle is Explorations in Christian, Christian Wisdom. And so I think that we need to learn to do wisdom Christianly. And one of my great disappointments is that we as the church have been caught up in the polarization of our day. And left-wing churches are 
all in on the left-wing political agenda and uh, more conservative churches are all in on right-wing political agenda and we're being uh, we're being tossed to and fro like everyone else and I think it's really destructive for us and so my interpretation of wisdom is founded in the phrase the fear of the Lord and the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom just says that basically it just means we're not God um, and stop stop acting like God. Um, stop thinking that we we know, um, at least we know definitively. And of course, the great temptation in the Garden of Eden is um, you will be like gods and know have the knowledge of good and evil. Um, and we we are aspiring to that constantly on both sides. Um, and so I'm interested in the dynamics of polarization, how we, you know, sociologically and 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 otherwise push ourselves to the extreme and all the pressure goes to the extremes um, and finding some way to find some sort of humility in that, um, some way in which we become open to learning and less likely to be um, and to have our faith, the agenda of our faith stolen by uh, the powers that be. And so uh, my, my own sense is that um, uh, the powers and principalities which people on the left think belong to people on the right because they represent the traditions that have held us back and that are, you know, we, we, okay. And the people on the right think that the powers and principalities are on the left with this secular agenda. And, uh, and my sense is that the powers and principalities are the way in which those two positions have become polarized and feed off each other and in a paradoxical way need each other um, because uh, polarization means that you define yourself not in terms of who you are, but in terms of who you're not. Um, I, you know, so my identity in a polarized situation is I am not like them over there. Um, and uh, once you define yourself over against what you are not, you become incapable of learning from them. Um, you have to either write them off as stupid or immoral or crazy or criminal and we see that sort of thing going on all the time in in polarization. So the Wisdom Project is a way of sort of saying, how do we get out of this? And, and of course, I'm doing it in a Christian context, and I'm uh, trying, to, tr trying to say, well, let's start with us. Um, how can we access the resources we have within our, um, within our faith and within our Christian tradition to... Um, to be what to become wise. And that brings us to our final segment. What's your pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we are watching the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Danielle, what's your pleasure? I say this with the caveat that I may have entirely forgotten that I've already said this on this show, but I'm doing it again anyway. Uh, my pleasure lately has been, I don't know how to categorize them, but handicraft reality shows. So competition shows where people make things of various sorts. At this point, I think I've watched every iteration <laughs> of that premise. Um, there was one that we watched recently that was a glass blowing competition, which was lovely. And most recently uh, was the second season of, uh, it's called Best in Miniature. And it's a competition of miniaturists, like hobby miniaturists, professional miniaturists. Um, I actually got into making some miniatures myself kind of at the early stages of the pandemic when people were discovering hobbies they've never had before. Uh, and I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, and then the show came out and I was quite taken with it. It's one of the least actually competitive competition shows. Like these people are all like aggressively supportive of each other, which was very refreshing. Um, but also, yeah, it's just fascinating to see 
how small people can make things. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's been giving me a lot of pleasure lately. Uh, how about you, Jimmy? What's what's your pleasure? Uh, my pleasure lately has also been uh, a TV show. Mm-hmm. So uh, Ted Lasso. So uh, for those listeners who haven't heard of the show, uh, <laughs> it's a comedy uh, starring Jason Sudeikis of uh, SNL fame. And basically it's about this American football coach who accepts a job as a football coach in England for um, what what the rest of the world refers to as a football, right? So <laughs> initially, he doesn't know much about the sport and a lot of the hijinks of the show ensue just based on misunderstandings and confusion. And it takes the athletes some time to warm up to him. But it's also a very heartwarming, uh, touching show. And I think the characters are, are written in a way that really uh, helps you to empathize with them. So I... Uh second second your pleasure it's a great show it's a great show that's it for our show this week if you're interested in reading jeff's book on truth it's available for purchase on the whip and stock website whipfinstock.com Also, if you'd like to find out more about Jeff's interactive forum on wisdom and polarization that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the project is called Of Serpents and Doves, Explorations in Christian Wisdom. You can email Jeff directly at jeff.dudiak at kingsu.ca if you'd like to be kept up to date on that project. Another exciting piece of news regards the newest book in the CPRSE's Currents and Reformational Thought series, a volume of essays in honor of Bob Sweetman's retirement titled Gestures of Grace, published with Whipfinstock. This book will be available soon through the publisher's website and other online booksellers. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on www.icscanada.edu. And if anything from today's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith@icscanada.edu. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can find us on the podcast app of your choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends.